Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. We want to take a moment and gather all of our experiences from the previous week and all of the, the moments we anticipate for the, the days that are ahead and collect them in this one common moment of prayer. And so even now as we welcome um, the rest of our church family who is down the hall in our Family Life Center, we welcome them into this moment. I ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Most glorious and loving God, we pause for just a moment to acknowledge that there is none greater than you. We have gathered in this place to confess that. We gather in this place to sing that, to think it, to feel it, to encounter that truth. But we recognize, Lord, even in this moment, we have come from a variety of places and we have each brought a variety of experiences. Some have gathered on this day ready to celebrate, ready to give thanks for some grace that they have been able to recognize and experience this week. But others have gathered in this place having barely made it here at all. And upon sheer faith, They have come to this place hoping they may see something, hear something, encounter something that makes the difference and gives them a reason to wake in the morning and do this one more time. But in this moment that we share, we lift up all of us before you. Even in a week in which we watch families grieve over another terror attack in New York and even on this day, after a a culmination of suffering and brokenness throughout the past week, we bring that to you and we confess that we not only despise those moments, but we, we own them. We recognize that, yes, we live in a broken world, but we are among those who break it. So as we worship today, we don't simply ask that you would bless us and meet us where we are and give us the things that we need to make it through one more week. We pray that you would transform us so that with changed minds and hearts, we may repair the world by the way we live and love. Lord, you are welcome in this moment, this place, this this hour, and we pray that you are worshiped by all that you see take place. For we offer this time in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, friends, I am very excited today because today we begin a new series, a new series through the month of November in which we focus our common consciousness upon one theme. We call it Semper Reformanda, The Semper Reformanda simply is a Latin phrase that implies um, always reforming, 
We believe that we are in a church that is always under progress, in progress, under construction. And you know that last week marked the 500-year anniversary of a critical moment in our history as people of faith, as followers of Jesus Christ. Last week on Halloween, on October the 31st, in 1517, it was Martin Luther who nailed 95 grievances to a door at the, at the Castle Church in Wittenberg and ignited what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Today, we begin thinking about that. And over the next two or three weeks, we begin to imagine together what it looks like that we are still reforming. Where and in what ways is Christ calling the church of today to be remade? in his image as we continue to be the body of Christ for new generations. But today, I can't be more excited than I am to introduce you uh, to a guest. Today, in, in order to help us put our minds around the experience of the Protestant Reformation, in order for us to somehow embrace um, uh, the, the moment uh, of Martin Luther's decision to, to step out and speak up, I've invited a, a friend. Dr. Lloyd Allen is a professor at the seminary here at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. Uh, and as I told you last week, he's also my supervising professor for my doctorate. So behave, <laughs> be nice, right? But I want to give him a proper introduction. So on the back of the order of worship in, in this room is a description that is not present in the other room. So I want to give him a proper introduction, let you know who is coming to share with us in character a dramatic monologue of Martin Luther. Dr. Allen holds the Sylvan Hills Chair of Baptist Heritage and is Professor of Church History and Spiritual Formation at McAfee. His training for Christian ministry took place at Southern Seminary or Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, which awarded him the Master of Divinity in 1978. That's a long time ago. <laughs> so long ago. And the PhD in 1984. He is one of the founding faculty at McAfee School of Theology, and he, he feels fortunate to teach at a school of theology that balances uh, determination to achieve academic excellence with the desire to support the ministries of the local church. He and his wife Libby enjoy serving at their church, Parkway Baptist Church in Duluth, a sister church just down the road. Uh, he enjoys road trips and hiking. His daughter Claire is a recent graduate of Mercer University, and I want you uh, to give Dr. Allen a JCBC welcome. Would you welcome Dr. Lloyd Allen to be with us today? Good morning. I am delighted to be here. Uh, on the recognition ceremony of something happened in October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago. What happened is, as your pastor has already mentioned, that a German monk nailed 95 statements, we call them 95 theses, 
to the church door in his town because he knew everybody would be coming there on All Hallows' Eve night, and it was kind of like putting it on the bulletin board. What he meant to do was start a discussion within his university. What happened was somebody, we don't know for sure who it was, took those statements down, put them on the Facebook of the time, which was the printing press, and it spread far and wide. And instead of starting a local discussion, it changed history. I think of it as if what uh, Martin Luther had done was to try to light a match in the darkness of his own particular life and times. And uh, when he lit it, he tossed it out into the darkness, and it was as if the fuel had already been laid for a huge conflagration, and all of Europe was set on fire. And it changed the life of the Christian church and what we Christians think about the nature of the church ever since. It didn't just change religion. It changed politics. It changed the way that we uh, treat churches and the way we do church. It changed the way we understand the nature of the faith by putting the Bible in everybody's hands and many other ways. But the biggest change it made is the theme that you have going on here in the next few weeks. It changed the idea that the church, it introduced the idea, and 500 years later you are still experiencing this, the idea that the church can be reformed, should be reformed, and will be reformed always. That movement towards trying to become better church through all of time. We then are spiritual descendants. We're talking about our family. When we talk about what this beleaguered monk Martin Luther did to start a movement that we call Protestants, I want to mention to you that we are near Atlanta, and in Atlanta, the most famous Baptist preacher that's ever come out of this town was named Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and uh, it, until he was five years old, Dr. King's name was Michael. But his father, Daddy King, changed Daddy King's name and his son's name in memory of or uh, to try to identify with this movement to try to make the church, the nation, the society, the world a better place, a place closer to what Christ meant for us. Well, today... I'd like to step aside now and by permission of your imagination give the pulpit over to a Reformation personal testimony. So, brothers and sisters, uh, I introduce to you Dr. Martin Luther. Thank you, Lloyd. God, he's good, isn't he? Good morning, friends. 
I'm delighted to have the chance to be with you today and to give a little bit of my personal testimony. I hope you'll forget, forgive me using notes, but you've got to remember it's been 500 years since these things happened, and my memory is not what it used to be. Some of you can identify with that, I'm sure. On the other hand, positive side, I've had about 500 years up in heaven to work on my English. And so I've gotten rid of that heavy German accent. Some even say that in my English I have picked up an accent uh, that is more southern, but I guess that's just a Bible Belt thing, I'm not sure. I'm trying to be cute because I'm a little nervous at facing such a large crowd as yourselves and people in the time and place from which you come. But I have to admit to you, I have faced more difficult crowds. In the year 1521, in the year 1521, I stood trial for heresy. I stood trial for my life in the great hall in the city of Worms in Germany. My prosecutor was one Archbishop Eck of the Roman Church. But behind him stood my judge. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was ruler over a greater domain than any since Charlemagne 700 years before. And there I stood, just a simple monk from a small town who had copper miner, a copper miner for my father and my mother, a simple housewife. And I had nothing to sustain me before my accusers except my faith in the Word of God. You see, through Bible study, I had learned the Bible because I'd had to teach the Bible in university. I had come to believe that certain abuses supported by the hierarchy of my church, including the Pope himself, needed to be condemned. And you've already heard how I wrote my critique in those 95 theses a few years before. Prosecutor Eck believed my views heresy. And so he wrote to me on that day, and I quote, he said to me on that day, and I quote, Martin, how can you assume you are the only one to understand the true sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox Christian faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers and mothers believed until death, and given to us as an inheritance, and which we are now forbidden by the Pope and the Emperor to even discuss lest there be no end to debate. I ask you, Martin, speak plainly. Will you or will you not refute your works? 
Well, as I searched for words to answer that question, I glanced desperately around the hall for support, and I found the cold stare of the Holy Roman Emperor, who would soon say of me, and again I quote, a single friar who goes counter to all of Christianity for a thousand years, he must be wrong. Not only I, but the noble German nation would be forever disgraced if by our negligence, not only heresy, but the very suspicion of heresy were to survive. I will with all my power proceed against Luther as a notorious heretic. So yes, I have faced tougher audiences than you. And I was afraid, afraid for my life. If I got this wrong, not only my life on earth, but my eternal life was in jeopardy. And I need you to know <clears throat> that I have always been easily frightened. Since my childhood, I've been afraid of death and of eternal damnation, a child of tender conscience. And I tried to conquer my fear as an adult by becoming a monk and living the holy life of a priest in order to please God, which was the way my church had taught me. If seven prayers a day were good, I would pray 14. I tried to co connect my life to the lives of the saints by pilgrimage to Rome, the power center of my church's outreach on earth. But I must tell you, the corruption and the immorality I found at the top of the hierarchy in my church stunned and sickened me. I tried hard to earn my salvation, but my guilt remained. I found no peace with God. So, I gave up trying and became a religion professor. I'm waiting for others to get that one. <clears throat> and there, at Wittenberg, in order to teach the Bible, I first began to read it. And the Word of God changed my life. It also changed your life. One day, as I was reading Romans 1.17, with the phrase, The just shall live by faith. Somehow the Holy Spirit brought that truth home to my heart. I wrote to a friend after this experience in a letter, this quote. It was there that I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again, and I had entered 
through the gates of paradise itself. End quote. But I tell you now, my heart was free at last. And I found peace with my maker, my redeemer, my sustainer. But ironically enough, being at peace with God put me at war with my church. As I tried to live my life out of this new center in God's word to my heart through the Bible, I landed in trouble and I came to that trial at Worms. And in the heat of the ensuing debate, I made my case from Scripture alone, as I understood it through my plain reason. And I determined to be true to my own conscience, no matter what others might say or do. I believe then, I believe now, that the Holy Spirit leads to truth through that path and that path alone. I lost that debate. My friends and I found ourselves a despised minority in the church as a whole, publicly humiliated and chastened. So I was led before the great emperor and the leaders of the church, charged with heresy and told to recant. I looked at their angry faces on that day in the great hall, and I was again afraid. I was afraid to die. I was also afraid that I just might be wrong, and that going against centuries of my church's tradition and practice and custom was fatal to my soul. But deep within, deep within, I had a greater fear. The fear of God. Not a fear like my old fear of damnation. This present fear was the fear of sliding back into slavery. Of losing the freedom to say yes to God and God's way. Which was purchased at so great a price on the cross. In that awful moment, as my very life stood in balance, I feared above all things being outside of God's will. So I faced the emperor and the princes of the church. X question echoing in my ears, Martin, will you refute your views? And I answered with these words. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other.
Amen. Now some would say that I should have submitted to the authority of those in the church who were appointed over me. Others would say that since the majority believed differently from me, that I should have tailored my views to fit the majority. But I decided to stick with a higher authority on that day, a higher authority than either church official or majority opinion. I decided to follow Christ as revealed to me in Scripture. I believe now, these 500 years later, that Christians must do church like that. 1 Peter 2.9 says, We Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. No person or assemblage of persons stands in authority between you and God. No pope. No preacher, no professor. No denominational hierarchy. No state official. In good conscience, with clear reason drawn from Scripture, guided by the Spirit, you must take your stand. This is the scriptural teaching that I risked my soul to save my soul on that day in 1521. And the rest is history, as they say. But I need to tell you that the work that was started by me and those who stood by me back then was not completed by our weak beginning. I understand this is a Baptist church, yes? Well, you Baptists, for instance, went beyond my weak beginnings. You Baptists built a system to protect the priesthood of believer. You championed, as I never did, the separation of church and state so that no emperor or president could again punish persons for their religious beliefs no matter what they are. You championed the autonomy of the local church and the freedom of the individual believer. So no bishop, no council, no convention could interfere in one's relationship to Christ. And in 1845, in Augusta, Georgia, for many, many, many wrong reasons, your Baptist ancestors gathered, but they got one thing right. They called for no creed but the Bible so that the word would never be watered down by human summaries of it. I trust you are still reforming that community. So, in some ways, I'm not among strangers, am I? In some ways, I am at home with you, aren't I? You are my people. But before I slip back into the mists of time, let me lead you, leave you with a word of caution. The freedom to stand alone under God's word 
is not bought cheaply, nor is its possession guaranteed to you. Every time you face a hard decision, you will decide for or against that freedom. Each generation decides for itself what it fears most. Loss of traditional security, economic security, social stability, or loss of its freedom to follow God's call, whatever the cost. Do not let go of your responsibility to read Scripture with an open mind and to follow wherever the Spirit leads you. If instead you give in to fear of the majority opinion or any other fear, you'll be no better off than those of my day who gave over their hearts and minds to Pope and Emperor without protest. I've got a Bible verse for you. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set you free. Seek to think, to pray, to act in Christian freedom. And remember where freedom's fortress lies. In the days that followed my condemnation, I was kidnapped by a friend and kept safe in a great fortress castle called Wartburg. A few years later, I found refuge in an old song, Psalm 46.1, and was inspired to write a new song connecting those two events, a song that I realize you still sing because you sang such a marvelous experience of it. And oh, how I love an organ. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. So whenever, wherever, the freedom to speak openly and honestly about matters of faith is threatened. Though the world with devils be filled, we do well to stand and sing of a God who sets us free in the midst of powers and principalities of this world. So my last word to you is, who among you will sing that song, will lead that life, will take that stand? May the reformation of Christ's church continue at JCBC. May it continue in your lives. May it continue in your community. Semper Reformandat. Amen. Thank you. Friends, let's give Dr. Allen a hand for being with us today. Yeah. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Yeah? I heard not long ago, Dr. Allen, that uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, the Holocaust survivor, once mused about the presence of a Statue of Liberty on the east coast of our nation, uh, heralding to all who would come in those doors that this is a land of freedom, that we celebrate freedom. He said, perhaps 
it would be wise one day to erect on the West Coast another statue, a statue of responsibility. Because with great freedom comes great responsibility. And as we have allowed our imaginations to move us back about 500 years to consider how it is that we, God, where we are now, how it is that we have been afforded the number of freedoms, the number of dignities that God put already within us, but perhaps needed some unearthing after some time. As we have considered today the freedom in which we are called to be lovers of God, there is also a call for responsibility. Is it possible that somewhere, somehow, in some moment recently, you have been called to live into your faith, but for whatever reason have chosen to shrink, to withdraw, to fade, rather than to stand upon your confidence in the Word of God and on your conscience and the freedom to access a relationship with God. Perhaps today is a day to live into that freedom and embrace it and be embraced by it, maybe for someone for the very first time, to know that in you right now is the power of God's holy presence. And no one put it there. And no one can take it away. And you need the help of no priest, king, president, empire, or pastor for you to access it. But you may need encouragement from a fellow sojourner to say, Chase it, seek it, embrace it, and live within this relationship that can continually set you free. Let's take just a moment and offer a word of prayer. And as we pray, you'll have the opportunity afterwards to respond in freedom, to respond in responsibility to the God who loves and calls you. Let's pray together. Most loving and ever-present God of, of the ages, God of Luther, God of all who have handed to us an understanding of how this faith works, it's to you that we pray in this moment. Lord, we recognize that you call us to a faith that is fervent and strong. You call us to be able to live fully into the witness of that faith and not be intimidated by any power. But we also confess to you that we can scurry like mice in the night upon the slightest threat to our, to our freedom. Show us this day how to find defeat and to stand firm upon the awareness that you are with us. May our prayer be the prayer that was penned by Luther in that third verse. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But your truth, God's truth, abideth still. And your kingdom is forever. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.